From the Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, this is Stories from the Stacks. My name is Ryan Tate. I'm a PhD candidate in history at Rutgers University. I'm here at the Hagley doing uh, research for my dissertation, uh, which is called The Saudi Arabia of Coal, the Energy Crisis in the American West. And the project is sort of a labor and environmental history of energy development on the northern Great Plains since the 1960s, Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas. And it's, it's beyond just sort of a regional studies looking at how political and economic forces uh, and shifting relationships actually to the Middle East are impinging on this region, on its landscape, on its political economy and, and the social character. Coal kind of had a, a much stronger history in the region that went back a little further and that also in many ways had reshaped that landscape, I think, in some of the politics in a more fundamental way. So I kind of, so the story really became a history of strip mining and of coal development. Um, in 1960, that region produced less than 1% of American coal, um, and within about 30 years, it produced half. I, I, I did a seminar paper in graduate school on a power line protest that happened in Minnesota among these rural farmers. And when I finished it, I realized, um, and it was around the time that like books like Andrew Needham's book had come out called Power Line, and some other works were being done in which sort of environmental historians were taking sort of the Bill Cronin approach to sort of tracing the commodity. And I realized that I hadn't done that. And, and when I followed the power line back to where it originated. It was a brand new strip mine and coal generating facility in Underwood, North Dakota. And I thought, that's strange, because it's being built in like 1973 or 1974. And I thought, why is that? And I realized that that was sort of the edge of uh, this region, this sort of Fort Union coal formation. This. Uh, so at Hagley, I've been looking at uh, the Westmoreland Coal Company papers and the papers of uh, E.B. Ted uh, Leisenring, who was the president of Westmoreland and, and chairman and CEO, all kinds of different uh, major titles from between the 1960s and 1980s. Westmoreland is interesting because they were actually one of the very first sort of eastern coal companies to go west, to start like a western coal venture. Um, and there's a whole kind of shifting geography of coal production during this period, away from sort of Appalachia towards the west. And Westmoreland's kind of at the front of that. They, they go out in 1970 to the Crow uh, Indian Reservation and they, um, in Montana, and they, and they um, uh, buy, I think, about a contract for something like a billion tons. And they uh, begin their strip mining operations within the next few years, by about 74, I think. Um, and so that western venture is sort of uh, part of the archive uh, here. And then, and Leiserling had kind of pushed that within the company, that there was a, it was considered to be a risky business. They had been in the, the coal industry for a long time, but a lot of these executives didn't know anything about mining in the West. Uh, one of the major reasons that actually um, Western coal becomes very attractive is because the United Mine Workers does not have a foothold in the region. They did early in the 20th century. There was a lot of UMW activity there and a lot of labor radicalism in the West, um, but it's basically gone. Um, and in fact, Tony Boyle, who the controversial head of the United Mine Workers during this period has actually got his start as sort of the district president out in Montana. Um, but at that point, uh, there wasn't much of a, a mining district for him. Actually, that gets into some of the sources that I found that's actually kind of interesting. Um, one of the documents that I, that I came across, you know, I, I've heard that story a lot, actually, that, the, that it was a perk for the companies to go west um, because of the UMW activity or lack of UMW activity. Um, but I actually found in the archives and sort of their operational files uh, like a 60-page uh, legal document that they had a lawyer draw up because the big problem they had was that when they went west, um, they were kind of loosely affiliated. They kind of had a branch 
And one of the problems under their contract with United Mine Workers is that it applied to any subsidiary or any affiliate of Westmoreland. So they realized after they had started their Western operations that they might have accidentally left the door open for the United Mine Workers to walk in uh, and claim collective bargaining rights. So they quickly had to basically erect uh, barriers between their home office in Philadelphia and uh, their branches out west. And I had never seen that before, so this was actually really exciting. So the, my favorite part actually was the memos that happened after that document was uh, released to the executives. So they start f- sending memos back and forth pretty frantically about how to, how to follow the lawyer's legal advice to create you know, the and in these documents are saying things like, uh, quickly, if you're the West Coast people, scratch out Westmoreland Coal Company from your letterhead. Uh, we're going to set you up with a separate payroll system. Um, and so it's all these kind of creating these, these uh, barriers that exist on paper. Uh, but of course, the executives are all sort of friendly with each other, and they can all communicate across uh, the boundaries. But on paper, they become separate sort of, uh, Westmoreland becomes a partner in the Western venture. I think it's really easy to tell a very exceptional history of American capitalism. And I think these stories about extractive industry this late in the 20th century and realizing how similar it is to what's happening in other parts of the world, and not just how similar it is, how connected they are, how the same people are networking between these different places, um, and how the same oil companies who are operating in Saudi Arabia are coming over to the American West and buying coal leases. In, in, in the 70s. That sort of it helps us to sell sort of, or to tell better, um, to think more comparatively uh, about American history in this period in, in the, around the world. And I think also it's, it's, it's great to take places that, I mean, talking about Montana in the 70s and Wyoming in the 70s is not really sort of a popular historiographical move. Being able to show how these places that sometimes in the United States become like flyover country are actually some of the most global places on earth. To learn more about the Hagley Museum and Library, and to listen to more stories from the Stacks, please visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.